This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I realize that many of you in the audience are familiar with much of what I shall have to say. I, I hope that I'll have a few new twists that you've not thought of, perhaps. But just to be certain that we're all on the same page, uh, I'm going to do a very stratospheric overview of some of the key points about vitamin D physiology and uh, the role it plays in the maintenance of health. Uh, I'm going to cover uh, uh, several points, why vitamin D is important, how it works, where do we get it, and how much do we need. Those are, I think, the practical questions that most everybody uh, in this field wants to know something about. Now, why is it important? Well, a primary function of the vitamin is to serve as a part of the biochemical apparatus whereby body systems access the information stored in their DNA, which enables them to respond to routine, ordinary signals and stimuli. Now, to illustrate that point, I want to go back to uh, a few cartoons here. Uh, Here's a cell with a nucleus and the DNA in there, as we all recognize. When I went to medical school, we wondered sometimes why we had DNA in the nucleus of every cell that was sufficient to encode a whole human being. But we recognized that we needed to replace tissues, and so we had to have the instructions for doing at least that. You cut your skin, and you need to make new skin cells. Uh, You run out of white and red blood cells, so you need to make new blood cells. And uh, therefore, you have to have the blueprints for doing that. And that made good sense. But it wasn't uh, adequate. And the current understanding uh, is that DNA functions constantly, and I mean minute by minute and second by second, in the synthesis of needed cellular apparatus, altogether apart from cell replication. How does a cell respond? Well, there's some kind of a signal which it receives on its surface, and things called receptors. Uh, The first reaction of such a cell is to say to itself, I don't have the equipment that I need. But then after scratching its head, it says, but I do have the plans for what I need in my DNA. It's in my library. And so the signal with some helper proteins and other molecules goes into the nucleus, finds the right spot in the library where the information is stored, copies it out, and makes new, uh, new cellular a biochemical apparatus, and that is what constitutes the cell's response. So that's background. Where does vitamin D fit into the picture? Well, 125-dihydroxyvitamin D, sometimes called activated vitamin D, uh, is the key that unlocks this DNA library for most of the transcriptions we're talking about. And furthermore, it's the 125-dihydroxyvitamin D which is actually synthesized in the cell itself not the stuff that's carried in the blood and might be going to the cells and could theoretically be used by them. And the reason this is important is that it takes a higher concentration in the cell than is available outside, so you couldn't get by if you were relying on the outside stuff. And furthermore, this allows tissue specificity so that uh, if it were dependent upon the bloodstream hormone concentrations, you would get all your tissues activated at the same time. Whereas if it's specific to the tissue concerned, then that's where the action is. Now, a consequence of this way of acting is that in the absence of adequate vitamin D, none of our body systems works well. 
because they all need it. And it's, it, uh, 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 as another more concrete example, vitamin D, uh, as everybody who takes a basic nutrition course knows, uh, is necessary for the body to absorb enough calcium from the calcium in the food we eat. And I'll come back to this in a moment because of a point that it illustrates. But uh, this is a twist that I suspect most haven't really consciously thought of. Uh, in all of these actions, vitamin D is not causative. Uh, it's enabling. It's necessary for cell action, but it doesn't cause the action itself. And I'm going to illustrate that again with some cartoons. Here's 25-hydroxy-D and a cell. The 25 is outside. It also diffuses inside, so it's available to the cellular apparatus on the inside. Now, what happens under those circumstances? Nothing. The 25-hydroxy-D is there, the cell is there, but the cell isn't doing anything. When a stimulus comes along, and that could be a bacterium that's being encountered by a macrophage, or it could be a mammary ductal cell responding to a hormone, it could be any number of different normal signals. The 25-hydroxy-D gets converted to 125 in the cell itself, and that then enables a proper response. And by proper, I mean proper to the tissue concerned, such as if you're an islet cell, then you're involved with insulin secretion. If you're a macrophage, then you want to attack bacteria. Uh, if you're a smooth muscle cell in the wall of an artery, then you're concerned with, with, with appropriate uh, contraction for the maintenance of blood pressure. These are the tissue-specific actions which are going to be dependent upon an adequate concentration of vitamin D. But again, I stress, with no stimulus, there's no response. The vitamin D itself doesn't force that response. Now, what happens when there's some vitamin D but not enough? Well, the size of the response shrinks. Just that simple. You still get the response, but until you're very severely uh, depleted, you don't get as much, and then, of course, you don't get any at all. So uh, here's an example of the effect uh, we, 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 with respect to calcium absorption. Uh, the absorption fraction for an ingested calcium loads on the vertical axis, uh, and um, the vitamin D status is on the horizontal axis with 80 nanomoles or 32 nanograms per milliliter right there at the inflection point. Now, you'll see there's kind of a threshold effect there. And what that means is once you get up on the threshold, physiological regulation of absorption is no longer limited by or dependent upon vitamin D availability. There's enough vitamin D in order to allow the body to regulate the way it wants to. It can upregulate. It can also downregulate. Downregulate is important. That's an indication that the vitamin D isn't causing the absorption. It is simply permitting it enabling it. You can also do that same kind of regulation at an inadequate status, but quantitatively you can't increase as much. There just is not as much room. You don't have the capacity to go further. I remind you, and this has been implicit in this morning's presentation so far, that vitamin D comes in two forms. This is the form from mushrooms that Dr. Dr. Halleck spoke about this is the the form that we make in our skin, and this is what we, this is where all animals primarily depend upon. We've seen this, and I don't have to go into any detail here. Ultraviolet B radiation is responsible for for making uh, pre-vitamin D3, and that in turn. Uh, changes into D3, which goes into the bloodstream. And in, in the canonical scheme of things, 
that D3 was 25 hydroxylated in the uh, the uh, liver and in the endocrine side uh, it is further hydroxylated at the kidney and this is the hormone calcitriol which circulates in the blood and has an effect in this case on the gut to increase the apparatus that's necessary for the active absorption of calcium from food now, uh, I mean, that's kind of as far as it goes, and uh, it's important to stress that 25-hydroxy-D is what we use in the field as the functional indicator of vitamin D status. Now, we've, we've recognized several years ago that, would, that we have to expand this scheme substantially. Uh, it still works. There's the kidney producing the signal that goes to the gut, but there's also this a conversion of 25-hydroxy-D in all of the peripheral tissue cells, the ones that I spoke about a moment ago, in response to various specific cell signals. Uh, and this constitutes the lion's share of the vitamin D consumption in the body every day. This is where most of it's going. This takes only a small fraction of the, the vitamin D that we get. And even with a moderate degree of inadequacy, we can usually compensate by increasing parathyroid hormone secretion uh, in order to deal uh, with a relatively low concentration of 25-hydroxy-D. Now, where do we get it? Well, we've seen the sun. I don't have to talk about that any further. And Dr. Hollick uh, indicated that we may be getting more from meat than we had once thought. We get a certain amount from pills. You add all these together, that comes into 2,000 international units per day. And you'd say, well, that's a lot more than we used to think we needed, and so we must be getting all we need. Fact of the situation is we need twice as much, two to three times as much. So although we're getting more than we thought, and that's simply because we now have uh, analytical methods which allow us to find vitamin D and 25-hydroxy-D in food that we couldn't have done before because we didn't know how to measure it. So we're getting a lot more than we'd once thought, but it turns out we need a lot more than we'd once thought as well. So we still have the same gap between where we are and where we want them to be. Now, I want to shift for a moment to, uh, to an approach to take to nutrients in general, and, and vitamin D in specific. The right way to think about nutrition is as preventive maintenance. I think everybody in this room probably changes the oil in his or her car regularly. Uh, but if you didn't, the car would still run perfectly well. You wouldn't see any effects as a consequence of that. It would break down sooner, but you wouldn't know whether it was because of your inattention or some other factor. If you were running a fleet of cars for a big company, you would see it because you would know you were taking cars out of commission faster than you probably ought to. Uh, preventive maintenance is the right model. Uh, and we see this in terms of chronic disease. Chronic disease is a breakdown of structure or function of a body system. Its origin is almost always multifactorial. It's genes, it's various environmental factors such as nutrition, infection, toxins, injury, etc. And nutrition is where we're focusing today. The body has mechanisms to repair this damage or to fight it right when it occurs. And vitamin D is an essential component of many of these mechanisms by precisely the cellular activity that I just showed you a moment ago. Low vitamin D status impairs this protective or reparative ability so that our body systems break down sooner. That's what that message is. We see this in a sense diagrammatically. Demographers say that the theoretical human mortality curve has an average life expectancy of about 85 years. And two standard deviations takes you down into the high 70s or up into the low 90s, and that's about it. 
Whereas in the industrial, and, and, and so theoretically, we all ought to be alive until we begin to fall off the cliff here at, uh, in the mid, mid to late 70s. But in the industrialized nations, we have this kind of a mortality curve. It's partly due to not wearing seatbelts, partly due to guns in the U.S., partly due to smoking, uh, et cetera, et cetera, but partly due to malnutrition. And this difference between these curves uh, is something that can be countered by optimal nutrition. And indeed, all the national uh, nutrition programs take this for granted or perhaps are even in, uh, quite explicit about it. And the role of vitamin D in uh, this reduction uh, is the topic of this presentation, indeed of this conference, as a matter of fact. And we see this in the data that are available for us. This is from the Baltimore Healthy uh, uh, Aging Study. It was published um, 2009, five years ago. And what we see here is the survival distribution. Uh, this is in terms of a Kaplan-Meier survival plot for the first, second, third, and fourth quartiles of actual vitamin D status. These were individuals followed for, for, for a median of six years, and these mortalities were adjusted for all the usual suspects. Now, there's where the lowest vitamin D status level was, and there was the highest quartile uh, boundary above 27 nanograms per milliliter, we wouldn't think any of these was uh, was adequate by today's standards. But notice the, the, uh, the different mortalities here. This is about four times more deaths than in this highest quartile. Now, this is not just an isolated study. We see the same thing in the Swiss national cohort of, of 3,000 individuals, average age 47, followed for 18 years. During that time, 459 all-cause deaths. And for males in the open bar and for light blue females. And you see a statistically significant downward trend for both of them. These are 25-hydroxy-D quartiles expressed in nanograms. But, but just as, with, as in the Baltimore study, the highest quartile started only at 25. Had there been enough people in the population out here, who knows what we might have seen under the circumstances. We see the same thing in our own NHANES study, 2001-2004, uh, uh, individuals over 18, 10,000 of them using the, the National Death Index. They were followed for about five years through 2006, 500 and some odd all-cause deaths. We see here is, the, here is the predicted value, and these are the confidence intervals. But uh, uh, this, is the, this is the hazard ratio of dying during this period of observation as a function of increasing or improving vitamin D status. Uh, and you'll notice that from 20, which is where the Institute of Medicine said was adequate, out to 60, we have a nearly 60% reduction in predicted mortality under the circumstances. So the, the, the data are quite uh, consistent in that regard. I want to pause for a moment and make a kind of a working definition of what deficiency is. Uh, it's any condition in which inadequate intake of a nutrient results in, in significant dysfunction or disease. And nutrient adequacy is the situation in which further increases in the, in, in the intake of the nutrient produce no further reduction in dysfunction or disease. Nutrient adequacy is not the same thing as optimal health because there are other factors, smoking, et cetera, that could be uh, contributing uh, to the uh, to, uh, 
uh, to the health status. But I want to stress again, I've got dysfunction or disease, and they are distinct, and they're both important to consider under the circumstances. I want to remind you that all studies that have been published today in virtually all nations, irrespective of latitude, show that the majority of the world's population has inadequate vitamin D status. And the consequences of that are a series of diseases which have been alluded to earlier today. Bone diseases, of course, high blood pressure, increased risk of cardiac death, increased risk of prematurity, low birth rate, increased cesareans, diabetes, metabolic syndrome, periodontal disease, various cancers, multiple sclerosis, schizophrenia, etc. When first confronted with a list like this, a skeptic wonders whether vitamin D isn't a 21st century form of snake oil. How can it be that you could have a single nutrient that had effects in all of these tissues? Well, the answer is already what I've told you. Uh, vitamin D is necessary for the tissues underlying all of these diseases to function optimally. And if there's not enough vitamin D present, then you have various kinds of tissue breakdown as a consequence. And as I've already said, that's it. Adequate D status uh, enables optimal response. And deficiency manifests itself differently depending on the tissue that's being stressed, thus explaining the diversity of responses. Now, I'm going to show you a few of the recorded, reported uh, effects. Uh, I'll come back to this in a moment, and this is, this is just to refresh your memory about what's been published in these tissues. Uh, this is a study of vitamin D supplementation in older British subjects for five years, a double-blind randomized trial raising 25-hydroxy-D uh, from about 22 nanograms per milliliter to about... Uh, uh, um, uh, 29 or 30 nanograms per milliliter, not up to where you would want it today, but it was associated with a 33% highly significant reduction in relative fracture risk under the circumstances. Uh, here's, a, here's another randomized trial, this one looking at falling using calcium alone or calcium plus vitamin D. Calcium you wouldn't predict to have an effect on falling. The hypothesis was that vitamin D would have such an effect. Notice the very low baseline value. These are people who clearly need more vitamin D. And we see a roughly 50% reduction in risk in those getting the calcium plus vitamin D over just a short period of time, 12-week duration. We see the same thing with blood pressure. Again, this is a study that comes from Germany. Um, 148 women uh, randomized to calcium only or calcium plus vitamin D again. These bars here are the baseline values. This is the post-treatment for calcium only, baseline for calcium plus D, and post-treatment for calcium plus D. In both cases, there was a statistically significant reduction, and between the two forms, there was another statistically significant reduction. So one of the take-home messages here is if you're being treated for hypertension, then you need to ensure that you have an adequate amount of both calcium and D. Tuberculosis is another one. We've had this discussed at some length uh, just a few moments ago. Uh, but in this case, this was a randomized trial of 67 patients with advanced pulmonary TB who had standard state-of-the-art treatment, and they were randomized to receive either 10,000 IU of vitamin D per day or placebo. 
and they use sputum conversion as the index of response to treatment, and you see the placebo group having about a 76% sputum conversion, a pretty good treatment response by contemporary standards, but the vitamin D supplemented individuals, in addition to standard treatment, had total conversion and no failures under this measure. Highly significant effect. This is not to suggest for a moment that vitamin D deficiency causes tuberculosis, but it does suggest that if you're going to treat tuberculosis, you need to have adequate vitamin D status as well. And that reminds me of an old advertising slogan that came out of Atlanta many years ago, in which I think we can substitute another object. <laughs> if you're going to treat hypertension, if you're going to treat tuberculosis, if you're going to treat so many of these other disorders, make certain that you're not tying the body's hands, as it were, behind its back by not giving it adequate vitamin D. We see exactly the same kind of effects. I won't go into a lot of detail. Uh, with respect to cancer, this is from the Nurses Health Study, and we see a statistically significant reduction of the odds ratio as a function of 25-hydroxy-D quintiles, with, with the median values up here at 40 nanograms per milliliter, which is a bit more respectable. Breast cancer risk, we see exactly the same type of a phenomenon, with a 69% decrease in risk as a consequence of uh, improved vitamin D status, again, above 75 nanograms. Uh, 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 and we can put it above 30 here. That was nanomoles, I should have said. And here's, the, here's the, the major randomized trial that comes from our unit at Creighton. It was nearly 1,200 healthy women, average age 67, treated in a double-blind, three-way trial of double placebo, calcium only, or calcium plus vitamin D. And you'll notice they started with a pretty good vitamin D status already at baseline, and that was converted to 38 nanograms per milliliter, or nearly 40 under the circumstances. Here's the Kaplan-Meier survival plot for those who were cancer-free at year one, uh, and we see a 77% reduction in cancer risk in this group of individuals. And if we look at... Uh, the actual percents in yellow here of the various types of cancer, they were, they were the cancers you would expect in women of this age. You see breast was reduced from 2.6 to 1. Uh, colon didn't, um, I mean, there were no colon cases in the treated group. Lung from 1.1% to 0.2%, a five-fold reduction. Marrow lymphoma was cut uh, by a third. And uh, um, uh, overall, a highly significant reduction. So how much do we need uh, in order to ensure that we don't get these things? Well, vitamin D status is assessed, as I've told you earlier, by measuring the 25-hydroxy-D concentration in serum. But there's disagreement among the experts, the so-called experts, surely the policymakers, about how high that concentration should be. I think most experts uh, support a value of 40 nanograms or higher. I call to your attention that certain effects may occur uh, as low as uh, 80 nanomoles per liter, excuse me, that's nanomoles, and as high as 50 nanograms seems to be applicable. And outdoor summer workers, just to put it in perspective, commonly have values in the range of 60 to 80 nanograms. So to get up to 40 or 50 nanograms is not uh, uh, unusual uh, in, in, in terms of what you would expect under physiological circumstances. 
Now, where we run into trouble is that there is substantial discordance among the so-called authoritative bodies. <coughs> Here, for ages 51 to 70, we have the Institute of Medicine, we have the Endocrine Society, and we have the American Geriatric Society. These two were both published around 2010, 2011, and this one was published just earlier this year. Here's the daily input, either as an RDA or as a tolerable upper intake level. <clears throat> the Institute of Medicine's figure is 600, the Endocrine Society's is 1,500 to 2,000, and the American Geriatric Society's 4,000. I mean, these aren't even in the same ballpark. Tolerable upper intake level for the Institute of Medicine was 4,000, for the Endocrine Society, 10,000. This is commonly thought of or, or, or misexpressed as the point above which adverse effects begin to accumulate, and that's not true. The point at which adverse effects begin to accumulate is called the no-observed adverse effect level. That's technically different from the tolerable upper intake level, which is defined as an intake that a healthy person can, can continue to take throughout life without any risk of adverse consequences. And there's a big difference there. They both had the same NOEL, the same no-observed adverse effect level. The Institute of Medicine, to be on the safe side, applied a 0.4 safety factor to that 10,000 international unit number, and that's where the 4,000 comes from. It's the, it's the same evidence, it's just interpreted differently. Now, <clears throat> if you've been paying attention, you'll notice that all of the foregoing studies have focused on disease outcomes. The pathology that Dr. Wunsch spoke about a few moments ago pathology of the skin, which the dermatologists have talked to us about. But I want to talk to you about physiology. We haven't done that yet. As health is more than the absence of disease, we can think about these things as being a, a kind of arrayed along an, a, a line of different intakes. If we take a disease avoidance approach, as this is the, the approach taken by the Institute of Medicine by design, the, that's as far as we can go. I stress for a moment that, I mean a moment ago, that deficiency included dysfunction. And if we take a physiological approach that optimizes function, then we move farther along the intake spectrum. And it's for that reason that a physiological approach will inevitably produce a higher estimate of the requirement than the disease avoidance approach. Because the questions are different, the goals are different, the endpoints are different. So it's not surprising. It's not so much that they disagree. Oh, yes, the numbers are different, but the approaches are different, too. There are actually two frameworks within which we can approach the determination of a nutrient requirement. And as I've already hinted, risk assessment is one of them, and that means the prevention of some definable disease outcomes, such as breast cancer or a heart attack or rickets or something of that sort. Whereas a physiological approach is concerned primarily with functional support. Now, if we take the disease avoidance approach, which is what the Institute of Medicine does, there are a series of problems or challenges that they have to deal with. I don't have time to go into them today, but I want to stress this one in particular. But for a nutrient study to be informative, that is, to answer the research question that you put to it, you have to determine basal status so that you know that you're dealing with people who don't have enough. And you have to use it as an inclusion criterion in the study. You don't want to take people in who don't need any more, because there wouldn't be any point. 
The change in intake must be large enough to change nutrient status meaningfully. Change in nutrient status has to be the independent variable in the hypothesis. Change in status must be quantified. If you don't do a second measurement, you don't know whether you got the expected change in the nutrient status. And that's what your hypothesis is about. If I change nutrient status, do I produce a change in the outcome? If you don't know whether you change the nutrient status, then you're in trouble. And finally, co-nutrient status must be optimized. Now, I'm going to revisit these in more detail tomorrow. I just want to remind you that many of the studies that have been used by the Institute of Medicine and by the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force uh, and other such bodies failed on one or usually several of these requirements, and therefore they were not informative. Such studies are often null and hence contribute to the lack of statistical significance inherent in the risk assessment framework. Now, I want to stress to you again, uh, uh, as a kind of an application of a point I made a few moments ago, micronutrients, this isn't just vitamin D, micronutrients such as the B vitamins and vitamin D, etc., they function as components of physiology. Doesn't it make just plain common sense that we would determine the requirement on the basis of their function. <laughs> and that's what the physiological framework does. Physiology, functional optimization, which also, of course, confers an evolutionary advantage. It minimizes the need for adaptation. It's needed for a critical function. It approximates the primitive intake. These are three criteria that could be used. There are, are six or eight such criteria that have been suggested, but these three are particularly useful under the circumstances, and I'm going to go through them very quickly. Let's look at the need for compensation. Now, compensation for what? Well, if you have low calcium absorption, either because you have a low calcium intake or you have low vitamin D status, then you have to compensate. And that means elevated production of parathyroid hormone, which in turn uh, increases the synthesis of the active form of the vitamin so that it acts on the gut to increase calcium absorption, thereby closing the loop. Now, increased parathyroid hormone production is the index of inadequacy and is therefore an indication of the fact the body's compensating for an inadequate intake. This rise in PTH doesn't cause us to consume more calcium, but it does cause us to absorb more, thus tending to compensate for the inadequate calcium intake that, that we happen to be or a population happen to be ingesting. We see that when we look at the concentration of parathyroid hormone on this axis as a function of, of vitamin D status on this axis. This comes from a set of data developed in our own laboratory, and you see this very nice curvilinear relationship now, in any population, the concentration of parathyroid hormone will vary inversely with vitamin D status when 25-hydroxy-D concentration is inadequate. Whereas conversely, the point at which the slope of the regression line in a population becomes zero is the point at which no further compensation occurs. And there you see it, 120 nanomoles per liter, or virtually 50 nanograms per milliliter under the circumstances. If we write this down in our scorecard, minimal adaptation requires somewhere in the range of 120 to 130 nanomoles, or as I say, 48 to 50-some-odd. How about matching the ancestral intake? Mike Hollick uh, uh, showed us some of these natives here. Are the Mazai, another picture, a fair amount of skin uh, exposed. 
you get some idea of the degree of uh, pigmentation. Uh, the, uh, uh, their diet differs from the ancestral, but their latitude, skin pigmentation, skin exposure are about the same. Here, on, on the other hand, are the Hadza, uh, which are hunter-gatherers. And they've been designated colorfully, I think, by anthropologists as the last of the first. They are the sole remaining remnant of what would have been the human populations prior to the agricultural revolution, which then allowed us to settle on the land. And for them, diet, latitude, skin exposure, skin pigmentation are all the same as ancestral. Now, their blood con- uh, 25-hydroxyd concentrations have been measured. And here for the Mazai and for the Hadza, we have values of 110 to about 100 and some odd uh, nanomoles per liter. And if I average the two of those, because they're not statistically significantly different, that's the ancestral value. Now, there, by comparison, is the Institute of Medicine value, and there is the Endocrine Society value. So you can see graphically the difference there. Now, the importance of looking at these ancestral values is that's the intake, that's the status to which our physiologies were fine-tuned by natural selection and therefore would be the, the intake that is most natural to us, the one that is functionally optimal. doesn't mean that we can't compensate for something else. We do, as I showed you. So we put that number down in our box score here. Ancestral status, right in the same range, 115 nanomoles per liter. Let's look at physiological support. And for this, I'm strongly dependent upon the wonderful work of Carol Wagner and Bruce Hollis, both of whom will be speaking later uh, in this program. And, and uh, uh, the, the, the support of a critical physiological function, I'm talking about lactation. Some lactation facts. Human milk is capable of providing all the vitamin D an infant needs, but only if the mother has native vitamin D, that is cholecalciferol, not 25D, in her blood. And that's because vitamin D crosses from the blood into the milk, but 25-hydroxy does not, at least not in sufficient quantities to make any difference. Vitamin D has a half-time in blood of less than 24 hours, so the mother needs either daily input or a very large reserve in fat. What I want to show you here is the only group of data that I know of that's ever been published looking at 25-hydroxy-D as a function of D status in serum, D not 25D, D. This is a very difficult to measure. It's not clinically available. And so all the usual reports will use 25-hydroxy-D as an indicator, but not D. Now, I want you to, to, to note the very steep rise in 25-hydroxy-D concentration over very little change in serum D3, reflecting first-order kinetics, which means that as the precursor comes into the body, it gets 25-hydroxylated just about as fast as it comes in. And under the circumstances, the precursor doesn't, it does not accumulate, which is why the 25D goes up, but the D doesn't change appreciably. However, you reach this point, and there's a sharp inflection in the curve. This is where a saturation of the 25-hydroxylase appears to occur, and above this point, the reaction follows zero-order kinetics. That is to say, you make only so many millimoles of 25-hydroxy-D per day, regardless of what the precursor concentration is. 
Now, the transition is occurring here, and I want you to pay attention to the uh, numbers. It's a serum 25D of about 10 nanomoles or 4 nanograms per milliliter and a serum 25D of about 40 nanograms per milliliter. It's at this point that serum D rises into the range needed to support D3 entry into human milk, or, by the way, needed to support D storage in fat. If it's not in the serum, it can't diffuse into fat, of course. So it's got to accumulate in the serum before it gets in fat. Here are some very limited data on the need for D3 in the milk. Human milk D3 concentration ranges between 28 and 44% in three different reports that I'm aware of. Uh, of the maternal D, uh, D3 concentrations. And if we're going to meet the AAP's recommendation of 400 international units per day, that means that the mother's concentration of D has to be about 36 nanograms. I'm stressing D again, not 25-hydroxy-D. I'm going to show you this in diagrammatic form here. Uh, here's, the, here's the graph I showed you. Here is the range of serum values for D in the mother in order to meet the 400 international units there. And just in case the AAP was too conservative, uh, and maybe it's only 200 international units per day, there you are. And the line drawn across here shows the serum 25-hydroxy-D values that you would expect under the circumstances. You'll notice 120 to about 140. Wow. There, box score, all in the same range. Very re remarkable degree of convergence of these quite, di quite different approaches. And they all point to a need for total input sufficient to support a serum 25D level of 115 to 150, somewhere in that range. We can refine that number with more work, but it's not going to change very much from that ballpark. This means that all source input during lactation needs to be about 6,000 international units per day, which is exactly the number that Hollis and Wagner found empirically rather than analytically. So the, the, the fact that they come together on the same number is very reassuring. Now, we can draw some conclusions from these physiological approaches. One, unless we can find common ground around physiological endpoints, the common ground in terms of the policymakers and the scientists, we'll be left with only the inherently limited evidence provided by evidence-based nutrition, which is based, in turn, on disease avoidance. And we'll continue to subject our populations to possibly insufficient nutrition. Now, I think it's worth looking very briefly at toxicity because we're talking about more international units per day than many people are used to thinking about. And the fact that, as Dr. Hollick showed a few moments ago, that a single sun exposure to a minimum erythema dose produces in the range of 20,000 international units uh, in a single sitting, we're not talking about big numbers here, but still people worry about it. So this is a paper looking at vitamin D intoxication published in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition now um, about seven years ago. And notice the vitamin D intake is on a log axis, so we're out here to 10 million units a day. Nobody would want to even think about taking those kinds of doses. But, of course, that incurs in intoxication. These are all case reports of intoxication in which both the intake was known and the serum 25-hydroxy-D value was measured. Uh, 
whereas these are pharmacologic studies at a lower dosage. But even, even here, notice this is 50,000 international units per day. And now what I want to point out to you is there is no toxicity reported in any of these at intakes below, or, or excuse me, at serum levels below 500 nanomoles or 200 nanograms. And no toxicity reported for intakes below 30,000 international units. Uh, and if you take mild hypercalcemia as an indication of toxicity, there's no hypercalcemia below 300 nanomoles or 120 nanograms. So these are all entirely safe values. And they're all above the level that we're talking about. So there is room for safety there. So to conclude, I think I've shown you, and I hope that you will take this home as a carry-home message, that vitamin D functions as one of several micronutrient cofactors needed for cell function, but not causing it. Serum 25D levels below 40 are not adequate for most body systems. Levels of 50 to 60 may be closer to optimal. Levels of 60 to 80 are common in outdoor workers. And inputs from all sources in order to sustain even 40 need to be in the range of 5,000 uh, IU per day or higher. And with that, I thank you. Yeah, I was wondering, um, why shouldn't the level be doubled for a safety factor, given the fact that 80% of pregnant women are deficient? So shouldn't it be more like 120 nanograms per milliliter? Uh, would be a safe level uh, from an epidemiological standpoint? Well, I couldn't argue with that. I, I, I guess the question is that you asked, shouldn't the level for pregnant women be doubled? And I didn't, I didn't specifically mention a level for pregnant women. That's been the result of what Hollis and Wagner have done, have done earlier. But basically, uh, somewhere above 40 to 50 nanograms per milliliter seems to be adequate under the circumstances. It's not surprising you would need more for lactation because what you take in, part of it has to be shared with the baby and therefore isn't usable by the mother under the circumstances. And if you take a per kilogram approach of how many international units you need per kilogram body weight per day, uh, it turns out that the 6,000 international unit figure that Hollis and Wagner found for lactation is just about what you would expect for the combined body masses of the infant and the, and the nursing mother. So you just need to put so much in per kilo of body weight, and you will get up to a level uh, between 40 and 60 nanograms per milliliter. I don't know whether that answered your question adequately, but uh, I think there would be, I mean, there's so much resistance to going to even a level of 40 to 60 that to double that up to 80 or 120 uh, would evoke such a, an antibody reaction to that that the, that the nutrition system would go into anaphylactic shock, I think. That's what the science, I mean, he asked, uh, doesn't the science show that it wouldn't be a problem up at 120? Um, uh, if you're talking about an average figure of 120 and you have to do that in order to be sure that you get the bottom 5% of the population that doesn't respond as well up there, uh, that's another issue entirely. It's not a part of our, uh, our, our, uh, our prescribed talks uh, here in this conference, but, but I think that's a very good question. Uh, but what the critics will say is, 
uh, you don't need that much, even by your own arguments. They say, I mean, 40 to 50 should be enough, so don't go to 120. You, there might be some side effects that we don't know about. And therefore, to, to be on the safe side, why do something you don't need to do uh, at the risk of getting some consequences you hadn't adequately uh, anticipated? Yes, sir. Um, yes, I, I'd like to ask a very big question. In medical schools, when I went to school, taught that more than 1,000 IUs of vitamin D taken daily was poisonous. What are you teaching in medical schools today? The question is, what are they teaching in medical schools today, and why is it no longer correct that intakes above 1,000 are poisonous? Uh, I don't know why that was taught in medical school, but it was considered to be a fat-soluble vitamin and therefore stored in the body, and it would act for a long period of time, and it would build up, and you'd get into trouble. But now, in recent years, when we've had the technology to measure fat content of vitamin D, we find there's not much there. And the reason there's not much there is there's not much coming into the diet or we are avoiding sun. So uh, we have less vitamin D and therefore our fat tissue does too. Uh, it's not stored up there in high concentrations. Uh, I want to go back. Uh, in order to answer your question uh, best, I think uh, this diagram shows you don't begin to store vitamin D in fat until you begin to build it up in the serum. And that doesn't occur until you already have relatively high 25-hydroxy-D values. Now, it's at this point you begin to accumulate fat. If you were out here, you'd probably have a very healthy fat concentration of D, but not very many people are out there. These are studies that were done in under controlled circumstances where we could, could control how much was coming in and what the concentrations were under the circumstances. But uh, uh, the one thing students seem to recall is that fat-soluble vitamins can produce intoxication, therefore you have to be careful. And that's true. But too much water will produce water intoxication, and you have to be careful. Um, what's being taught today, I can't speak for the other medical schools, but at my institution, uh, I think the students get a maximum of four hours of instruction in the totality of nutrition. Totality. And the sad part about that is that physicians are generally recognized as the prime source of nutritional information in this country, and that's just patently false. Um, I'm not so surprised that they're not very knowledgeable. Uh, they're concerned with fixing what's broken, whereas nutrition is maintaining good health, and uh, we don't educate for that. We should, but we don't. And one last question. Yes, sir. Oh, I can't tell you that. I can tell you what I teach the students when I teach them, and I teach them what I just told you. Um, and, and I imagine that Mike does the same. <laughs> UCSD is to take the two weeks, 4,000 a day, beginning at age nine. Uh, as one final anecdote to kind of address some of these questions. Uh, the American Geriatric Society, as I showed you, uh, published finally this year 4,000 international units per day for individuals aged 51 to 70. Uh, I was a part of the uh, task force that discussed the special needs of various people under various circumstances in the aging uh, group. 
And there were nine vitamin D scientists as well as epidemiologists and public health officers gathered around the table debating all these issues for a day and a half and trying to come up with some reasonable numbers. I passed a piece of paper around and asked the nine vitamin D scientists to write down how many international units you take per day. And I said, don't just put your name on it. Just put a number down. And by the time it got back to me, all nine had responded, all took vitamin D supplements. The average dose of these people working with this compound every day, the average dose was 5,500 international units per day. So these were, these were, and this was true for their families as well. I mean, they were voting with their health. This was what they were convinced was the right number. Now, uh, I mean, at best, that's only nine medical schools. <laughs> I, I, even if they have a chance to say it there. Right. So thank you for your attention. Thank you very, very, very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.